Morning. Pardon me while I fix our little music stand here. It's good to see you guys. I'm, a, I'm mildly surprised that we have a, a bit of a quorum on Memorial Day weekend. There's other things to do, except that it's Houston out there. So all the Austinites like, let's go to church because there's air conditioning inside, right? Sort of. We actually arranged for the best weather we could for the homecoming of the hat makers so that you would um, just remember what you missed, right? What it's like to be a grackle in ATX. Well, welcome to Austin New Church. My name is Jason, um, and we are going to finish up the third part of a three-part series today, and I've been pretty excited about this. It has consumed my headspace since we don't have kids graduating high school, and we don't have sports banquets and summer swim or anything like that going on in all my free time. It's been lots of fun to figure out um, this little series that I've called The Answers Right in Front of Us, and I'm not sure if, you're, if you've completely caught that yet. Um, but I'm actually asking you to consider that this might be a very profound hack to the whole spiritual journey. And what I'm, what I'm saying is very simply that very, very often the answer you're looking for is right within arm's reach. And some of us fall back into this space where we're going to literally search the worldwide for the answer that's right here. So I, we've, we've hit it three times now. We've talked about relationships, we've talked about marriage, and we're talking about parenting today. But I'm actually asking you to consider that as a place to begin when you get a signal of discomfort, discontent, pain, ache, confusion, um, isolation, um, all of these things coming up through your system, what I'm suggesting is that we begin by considering what is right in front of me because it feels to me like this is a great uh, place to start that, that, that journey to figure out what it is we're looking for. You know, knowing where to look is everything in the world. When you take your car to a mechanic, uh, knowing that it's not in the radio is why he makes $80 an hour. Well, there's this thing, my car keeps clicking, I think it's in the radio. You, you think I'm joking. Lots of people bring their cars, they have no idea where to look. Knowing where to begin to look is half the battle of finding the answer. So today we're gonna to turn our attention to parenting. I know, right, dread, that subject. You know, only, the only people qualified among us to actually opine about parenting are people who have already done it once. Here's the problem with parenting. You know, we all win as grandparents because grandparents get it right because they've been through it once, right? Most of us actually get to parent our parents too for a while, and that's a good bonus. You get that free of charge. Um, but the truth is, is parenting really takes experience, and the ones who are most qualified to do it are the ones who already messed up a whole litter. You follow me? So we're going to poke at this a little bit today. It's ironic to me. It's so interesting that God would entrust us with the shaping of these little people, does anybody in the room feel profoundly unqualified from time to time other than me? Uh-huh. A couple of me too hands there on your Yeti. We're not going to ask you what's in your Yeti because we're talking about parenting today. That's great about Texas. All y'all transplants down here to Texas, get a Yeti. Nobody asks you what's in it. You can be prepared for family photos when it's 95 degrees outside and 100% humidity. I'm just saying there's, there's another little life hack, little secret. We did family photos last night. Because it makes sense to do them on the hottest day of the year after a seven-hour swim meet. We are clearly the parents that you want to model your life after. Just know this. Nobody is a black belt at parenting. Don't take it. Don't buy it. Nobody's a highly skilled technician at this craft, okay? This is not easy stuff. But just like last week we acknowledged single people among us as we, even as we spoke about marriage, I want to take a moment to set a foundation here before we jump into this subject by simply acknowledging that there are those among us who have begged God for kids. I don't mean asked. 
I don't mean said, this would be a good season. I don't mean said, you know, God, you know, it wouldn't be terrible. I mean, there are people who have made a life of begging God for an answer to this request. And we would be missing something if we were to look at any congregation and think everybody either wants to be parents or can be when they want to. Let's acknowledge some pain this morning. Most of you guys don't know this because you couldn't tell since we've had five kids now, but we struggled for multiple years to get pregnant in the beginning. And so I don't, I don't know the journey you're on, and I don't mean to identify with it as if to say your pain is light because I've been there, but I know that 30-day cycle of heartbreak where every 30 days you realize God has still not answered that one. How bad could it be, God, for me to beg you for kids? Like, seriously? Listen to me. You tell me what's left of a positive and warm image of God the Father when you know that he could answer that anytime and he still doesn't. You tell me what's left. So those of us who are surrounded by all these kids and all this stuff, I just want to acknowledge the fact that it can be very difficult to recover a loving image of God the Father when you have begged him for this answer and you have not received. All the while, unwed teenagers around the corner in the back seats of their parents' car seem to figure it out all the time. It makes no sense, right? You know what I'm talking about? Here's the question. If God can, then why doesn't he? If we know he's the giver of life and he can gift anyone with this gift, why doesn't he consider us? And that might be the most important question you ever dare to ask God. My suggestion is dare to ask him. He's not afraid of that question. And you know, while the rest of us whine and complain about how difficult our kids are, do you have any idea how difficult that is to be, to be in the presence of when other people are thinking, boy, it sure would be nice to struggle with your struggle, to have your struggle. It sure would be nice. Okay, we got some seriously uncomfortable people here today. We need to acknowledge this. As a community, we are, we are, we are all over this continuum. It does no good for us to assume that everybody needs to be married to be happy. We talked about this last week. It does no good for us to condescend to each other as if it's just this easy thing. Maybe it's easy for you. It's not easy for everyone. So I just want to acknowledge that. And I would suggest, and you have the permission to go here if you need to, there is no other way but to be angry at God. How could he simply not answer this request? It's not like you're praying for a McLaren or a new house on the lake. It's not like you're praying for fame and fortune, right? But God is not uncomfortable with the honesty of your question and your anger. So take that to him. And as with every other issue we face as a community, we have to see this. We have to see each other differently. We need to learn to speak to each other differently. And seeing one another, by definition, means acknowledging one another's pain and holding space for that. And now listen, holding space without rushing to that nice little spiritual one-two where we always try to find a silver lining and tell people, well, you know, all things work together. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard that, anybody, can anybody feel what I'm saying? We need to hold space for each other, not rush to resolve it, not dig for a silver lining, not quote scripture at it. If you've never been on the receiving end of that kind of cliche spiritual stuff, you have no idea how insulting that can be. Nothing strikes at the heart of a couple deeper or more profoundly than an inexplicable inability to have kids, to conceive. Now hear me, I'm going to turn a corner here and I want, I want you to hang on. And if you've got trouble with this, contact me later. Contact us later. We'll have this conversation. But this is wired into our evolutionary biology, right? This is something that we are here to do. But listen, God alone gives new life. 
but we decide whether we become parents or not. Here's my point. If God has not gifted you with the gift of biological procreation, that doesn't mean you can't parent. There are 400,000 adoptable kids this very moment in this country, not even to mention around the world. If God, hear me, if God has called you to parent and the answer is not coming, move, move on that. You say, well, I don't want to parent somebody else's kid because it might come with, listen, all our kids are trauma kids. I don't think I know any kids that don't come from trauma. They're born in America. They're pulled 72 different ways by parents who can't be present because what it takes to pay for the house that they need and the ballet and the, and the dance and the cheerleading and the swimming and the soccer and the everything else means we're not around. I mean, honestly, if God has called you to parent, let's have a conversation. I don't know any foster or adoptive stories that aren't full of trauma, but I don't know any kids who are perfect either or parents who have it all figured out. So I'm just saying, I know people who have said, God promised me 25 years ago and I'm waiting on his promise. Listen, there's more than one way to become a parent, okay? I want to let that, let that be. That's not what we're going to major on today, but I just felt like I wanted to say that. I don't know if you're here among us this morning and you deeply yearn to have kids, but if you are, please let this image of a loving father just sear itself into your, into your psyche. The psalmist writes in Psalms 56, it won't be on the screen, and I'm reading just this tiny passage from the message because I think it says it well. Speaking to the father, the psalmist says, you've kept track of my every toss and turn through sleepless nights. Each tear entered into your ledger. Another translation says, each tear gathered in a bottle. Each ache written in your book. Hear me now. God sees. He knows your pain. He knows this pain. He is with you and so are we. And we will do our best to retrain ourselves how to speak to you in ways that don't condescend or make light of a very painful journey. Okay? Can we agree on that? Okay, so here we go. Let's talk about parenting. We've talked about how to hold space for one another through struggles and trials, staying present and finding new language to talk about where we're fragile in our relationships. We've talked about how marriages become resilient when they power through difficulty, right? And how the very answer to your prayer, God, give me an amazing marriage, might be embrace this difficulty because it will make you strong. We've talked about those things, and now let's turn our attention to parenting. And here's what I know. Vulnerable doesn't even begin to, de- to describe what we feel when the subject of parenting comes around. When it comes up, when people start to look deeply into our family system at what we're producing in terms of children and sending them off into the world, raw doesn't describe it. Shame is too small a word. Anybody feel me this morning? Especially when we're believers and we're supposed to know how to get this right. Especially when you're pastors. Let's not even go there. Most of us were good people until we had kids. You know what I'm saying? We were good people, but then God sent us these tiny little faces, right, who amplify our weakness, who magnify our need to control everything, right, who basically mirror back to us all of our inadequacies every day, all day, from about 6 a.m. till uncomfortably past 9. (laughs) Thanks, God. Perfect. Thank you. Great. Don't remember asking for this, but hear me now. Nothing exhaustive today is going to be said about parenting, so if you're expecting a book, I can recommend some to you, but I do have some thoughts. And I always like to begin by blowing up some of the myths, right? Unthinking bad thinking is half of good thinking. And moving in the direction of reconsidering some things is really basic, but but I just want to throw it at you. And then we'll end with a a parable that I think describes the heart of the Father and a couple of tips. But let's let's shoot some myths. Here we go. Number one, if I do everything right, they're going to turn out right. Y'all know that it's not true, right? 
You see, there's no guarantee. Did you hear me? There's no guarantee. We don't know the outcome, right? You put raw material into a system, and you don't know necessarily what's going to come out. I think God was merciful to us because our kids were good enough going in that the system didn't completely wreck them. But you can do everything right, and they still not turn out right. And you can live next to the person who seems to get it all wrong and things turn out well. What I want to pick at today is our sense of what's right. What does that mean? What does it mean when it turns out right? What does it mean when you've parented well? Generally, what we mean is that they comply to the tribal decorum and all the ethics as prescribed by their parents. And so they're, we did a great job when our kids you know, go to college that we went to and do the things that we do and go to the churches that we go to. I want to, I want to, I want to drop to the, to the basement level before below ground level there in just a second. But tragically, many of us raise our kids as little extensions of ourselves. (laughs) You are the accessory to bring pride to your mother. Anybody else? Don't raise your hand. Do not raise your hand. That didn't show up in any form of the podcast. See? See how we are? You're the accessory to your father. You're the accessory to a family of athletes. You're number four in line, and you're a poet. Right? Get what I'm talking about? If you do everything right, it's going to turn out right. And who gets to define what's right? Well, obviously the parents, right? But turn out right, I would suggest, is more about being happy, well-adjusted, well-connected, knowing that you're secure, knowing that you're safe. No reference to college, no reference to income, no reference to this or to that. We have to, we have to reinterpret what we're aiming at so that if we hit it, we know we hit it, okay? So number one, the myth is if I do it right, it's going to turn out right. Guys, these are kids. They kind of fire out of the barrel like this, right? Number two, second myth, if we fail, it's entirely our fault. The weight of the world on the shoulder of some parents because their kids jump off the reservation and take a different route through the woods and the parents are devastated. They're in their 50s and they can't get their head up off the pillow and they're depressed because their kid didn't turn out right. What happened? They're carrying like Atlas, the weight of the world on their shoulders. They're carrying the outcome and that's not the game we're in. We don't control the outcome. We can do the best we know how with what we have. And my suggestion is it's probably safe to assume that most parents begin there. They're probably doing the best they can with what they were given. They weren't given what you were given. They don't know what you know. It's not fair to take a snapshot of any family system and say, well, this this failed and, and therefore the whole thing is wrong. Listen, I think the only way to fail is to change the locks and to stop loving the kid. Hear me. The only way to fail is to say, you do that and you're gone. These words, if they come out of your mouth, I think this is a parent failure. You do that and I'm dead to you. You're dead to me. We're done. You do that, I'm changing the locks. Listen to me. On the worst night of their lives, my front door lock will never change and I will open that door to welcome them in. That's the paradigm of parenting that I'm working with. On the worst night of their life. If I gotta pick them up off dirty 6th Street to drag them home because that's what they need, that's what they need. Number three, here's another one. These are our kids. Guess what? They're only ever on loan. I remember where I was sitting in my work truck up at a stone quarry in just south of, of Chicago when Allison called me and says, I think God is telling us to foster. I'm like, he ain't talking to me. She's like, I came up with every excuse. I was just about to finish grad school. I had no time for anybody's kids. Uh, uh, well, I barely had time for my own, to be honest. But I remember telling her, listen, I can't love a kid and then turn him out and just let him go. And I remember the Holy Spirit say, that's all I've ever asked you to do with your own kids. What gives? Why can't you do that with someone else's kid? And I realized my very last platinum excuse wasn't going to work. These are our kids as mythology. At most, they're on loan for a while. But they're never yours. 
in the sense that many of us think. We have no choice but to give them back. Listen to me. They will go back one way or the other. Whether you let them go or they walk away, they will not be yours. That's not the point of any of this. They were never ours to hold back. Number four, just another myth. Well-behaved kids are healthy kids. Wow. Shall I take you on a journey of the late 80s and the early 90s where I was totally compliant with everything expected of a good Christian youth group kid all the way down to the bowling shoes because Tuesday nights was Christian bowl, or Christian uh, skate night and Wednesdays was Christian bowl night or something, something ridiculous. I was utterly and totally compliant. I existed as an accessory to a ministry family to bring pride and to bring joy and I was rotten inside and I did not know I was loved. Now, that's my journey. That's not because they, they were doing the best they could do but I'm telling you, equating health with behavior isn't always safe. You know what I'm talking about. Behavioral compliance isn't all there is. See, strict adherence to the tribal ethic that you're born into doesn't necessarily mean you're healthy and balanced. It might just mean you're compliant, and it's not the same thing. What did Jesus have to say about those who outwardly complied but remained untransformed on the inside? We know the story. Fifth myth. Kids need near-perfect parents to turn out well. Guys, if there's ever an area where we need to be gracious with ourselves and with one another, it's in this area. I actually think parenting is more like hand grenade close than rifle precision. You know the difference? Just get it close. Just get it close. It'll do its job. Some of you need to hear that. What did the preacher talk about? He talked about hand grenades today. Hand grenade close. What our kids need most, and hear me, I, I, I believe this with every fiber of my being, what our kids need most are not perfect parents, but parents who know how to model relational repair. Know how to model the way back from the edge when you lose your cool and you say those words. Kids need parents who know how to dig out and repair because that's what they're going to carry on into life. They don't need perfect parents. Perfect parents are only on Instagram and mostly only when they travel. <laughs> perfect parents don't actually exist. Our kids need parents who know how to model the grittiness of real life. They need real people. Okay, so what are we left with? Without a doubt, my, my favorite image of God the Father in Scripture, probably the most tender image that I know of, is what the parable of the prodigal son relays to us. Listen, if, if working with God the Father as a positive thing in your life is almost impossible because of your earthly father, then, then, then just allow, this, allow these words to sort of recreate for you an image of, of, of how God acts as a father, how God is becoming father as we are learning to become adult children, all of this. Just let that set in. And, and if that's you, let's, let's talk in a different space about that. I understand it's, for some people it's not good news to even hear God equated with father because the father in your life was so destructive and so impossible to survive. And just, just hang on and let's read this scripture. Luke 15. I love this passage. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Doesn't tell us it was even an argument or a legal battle. He just divided his property. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed to his fields to feed the pigs. And there's no irony there for us as Americans who have bacon-flavored ice cream. But for a Jewish boy, that would have been tough. Just know that. 
He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And if you watch the story, the father's response to that is quick and it's surgical every time. I'm not worthy. There's always a response to that because that is ultimately not true. Make me like one of your hired servants as he's rehearsing this in his mind. So he got up and he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. I can still remember... What was his name? Benny Hester. Anybody remember Benny Hester from the 80s? He sang this awful song. It was called When God Ran. The song was terrible. You remember it, uh, Lamar? That might be somebody you remember. It was a terrible song. He's got a squeaky, terrible voice. But the powerful image of God who ran. This father ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son begins with his diatribe, right? I'm, I'm so awful. I'm so terrible. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, just like he rehearsed in his head. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father says, but the father says, quick to the servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is now found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, Wah, 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 right? The older son was in the field. Of course he was, doing the duty of son, right? He was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing, and so he called to one of the servants and said, what in the heck is going on? And the servant says, your brother has come, and he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother, you can feel it rise, you can feel it rise. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father... The one who ran went out and pleaded, even with the arrogant son. But he answered his father's, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed, your friend, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, he adds a little there, we always do, right? He's been spending it on hookers. Comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. And the son, the father who ran and the father who goes to the field to plead says, my son, The father says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this, your brother, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is now found. I'm gonna suggest to you that there was never anything committed to page in the form of text or word that more profoundly describes the heart of our God. Never paint on canvas, never sound in empty space could ever recreate what this story can create for us in terms of who God is and how he loves And this is our example. Think about a father who doesn't withhold the inheritance even though he knows he's going to waste it. He knows it's going to hurt. He gives it to him freely. Think about a father who doesn't lock the door once the wayward son walks away. Not only that, he wears a spot out on the porch waiting and looking. Think about a father who never stops watching. Think about a father who forgives without hesitation, who literally quiets his lips when he begins to to repent and say, stop, quick, party. Party, ring sandals, party, kill the fatted calf, roll in the Valentinas or the Franklins, who is now number two on the Texas barbecue list. Did you guys see that this week? This is what ADD does in the pulpit. Franklin, Franklin's is not, no, it's, it's now uh, snow, what is it? Snow is out in uh, Lexington, Texas. And Cadillac and Dallas, that's very disturbing. Anyway, 
Think about a father who rolls out the best of the brisket when, when his son just merely comes home. He doesn't expect any repayment. He doesn't wait for any of that. Think about a father who drains the bank account to celebrate his return and still invites and pleads with the smug, arrogant, religious, tribal, perfect son to come into the party. Think about that father. Think about what kind of father this was and just be that kind of parent. Okay, we're getting somewhere. Sounds easy, right? Here's my greatest thinking on parenting, and I don't know anything about it. We're launching one into adulthood this very week. Where is she? There she is. Trust me, the raw material was better than the system. She's amazing because God is amazing. We, did, we didn't know a thing. I could tell you horror stories. But here's what I know. Our greatest calling as parents is to channel the unconditional love that we receive from the Father. That's the game. The one thing we can do for them that God cannot do is embrace them, is forgive them and love them and hold them, physically hold them on the worst night of their lives. That's what God needs us to do. It's about maintaining arm's reach and keeping the air clear, keeping the air clean. Now, obviously, I don't mean necessarily geographical proximity. You know what I'm talking about. It's about staying close and loving unconditionally. Those are the two mandates I think that God has given us for our kids. By the way, I think the most insulting kind of distance is emotional distance. And sometimes you can live right next door and you can be a million miles away because someone is punishing someone because someone's not in compliance with whatever that expectation is. I'm not saying that if your kids move to Boston, you're going to be a bad parent. I'm just saying, what I'm saying is arm's reach, you know what it is. Arm's reach is, is nearness. It's the ability to presence the struggle and the, and the difficulty and have those words in that time. You see, I think we bog down. We try to nail every situation. We try to pass every test. We try to ace every quiz as parents. We try to cross every T and dot every I. And that's not what it takes to make a good parent. I think we're in this to stay close and to remain an open channel of unconditional love. I think, that, I think that's the game. And here's the problem. There's no, there's no sense of understanding unconditional love if it's not challenged. Right? How are we going to know? How are they going to know that they're loved if they don't push back? They're going to push back. How are they going to know that the heart matters most? By stepping on a few behavioral boundaries and discovering that the pain that matters is always felt in the heart, but there's a way to repair how are they going to grow up knowing that God is always near because we are and because we refuse to change the locks and to push them out? Parenting is so raw and is so vulnerable. It's been a very humbling week. Trust me, every parenting thing that can go wrong went wrong this week. You know how this works. You could have dropped in. You could have put your GoPro in my living room. Trust me, we did it this week. On everyone we're parenting, including our parents, it's been a tough week. It's so raw and it's so vulnerable. Some of you just caught that so close to our own areas of shame and our own buttons of implosion that I think we do far better to listen to the poets than the technicians. Hear me. The people who are subject matter experts in parenting exhaust me. They wear me out. They give me lists of things that I have to do. I'm so tired. I trust in the poets at this point. And what am I going to do? Don't ever do this, but I'm going to read you a poem on a Sunday morning. I was told in seminary, don't do this. It's not God's word. You tell me if this is God's word. You tell me. This is a poem that is very meaningful between, between Natalie and I. It's a, simple, it's a simple description of a father. So you can make of it as what you want. I'm not sure I can get through it, but I'm going to try. God speaks to us as he makes us. Then he walks with us silently out into the night. 
These are the words we dimly hear. You sent out beyond your recall. Go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows that I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. That's a poem by Rilke. That's a poem I actually texted to one of the newest parenting couples in our church this week. The Everett's had a baby, beautiful baby boy. The McGee's had a baby boy as well. Baby boy, girl, boy. I think it's the sweetest understanding of a father who's not obsessed over the granular, highly detailed, full HD compliance with my rules and my regs, but says, let it all happen, just don't lose me. Do big stuff. Create big shadows. I will always move in them. Here's the big idea. And in our little three-part series, this is the hardest jewel to fasten in that crown that we're trying to build. If it's true that the answers that we seek are right in front of us, then hear me, our kids are the answers to our prayers. Those of you who don't have kids yet, you think, well, yeah, well, naturally. Yeah, but those of us who have kids realize sometimes it's overwhelming to think of shaping the heart of this person. If we've ever prayed, Lord, make me more like you, then he's answered us. And this is his answer. You say, but you don't understand. My kid has special needs. My kid has this. My kid struggles with this. I'm telling you, your answer is right there. If you desire to love like Jesus loved, extend grace like he did, accept all mankind like he did, then the perfect answer to your prayer is expecting lunch when you get home. And clean clothes for tomorrow because we've got three days left of school. Now, if you're paying attention you're probably putting this together if you've been with us for these three parts. If you haven't caught the three parts, they're all online in our podcast. There's basically nothing that happens to us at the level of our relationships, in our marriage, or in the realm of our parenting that can't be turned into a valid way back to Jesus. Everything can, every struggle, every trial, every tribulation, every full-on fumble, every fall on your face, it can all be used to take us back to the heart of God. That's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, but you don't know my kid. You say, I know, I know, I know it's hard. They don't sleep, they don't eat, they don't do this. They, they, I know. Here's the catch. God is calling them by name as well, and we're just stewards for a while. We're just stewards for a while. So let's get super practical. Raising kids is more than a physical or emotional endeavor. It's a spiritual endeavor, and you know this by now, don't you? You know this. You're looking literally through these little rabbit holes into eternity as you're shaping this little child. You know this. This is a spiritual endeavor, and it's actually not about us at all, is it? Oh, God. If only it were, then we could control it. It's not about us. It's about giving them the language that they need to discover a father that is in hot pursuit already. He's already in hot pursuit. God's calling them by name. I know you say, well, I named him. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's their name, and God's calling their name. How do we teach their souls? This is the burning question. How do we not just shape their lives? How do we teach their souls? You see, society has done a good job of teaching them to be consumers and competitors, but we know that there's more than that. We know it's about their souls, and that's our job. How do we do that? 
We want them to be gracious and grateful and courageous. We want them to be kind and convicted and curious and confident. We want all of these things, and those things are soul characteristics. The question for us is how? How do we teach these values? Here's a couple of ideas, and I didn't make these up. I stole these from a rabbi named Sandy Eisenberg Sasso, who you may know who she is, researcher. There's two basic things, and I love this because my brain needs simple. Two things, she says. We shape their souls through story and through ritual. Now, let me unpack those very briefly. Through story, this is how we shape our children. Think of the Old Testament stories that we repeat endlessly, right? American evangelicals dig in the scriptures for doctrine and precision, but you know the Jewish people have always read them for the stories. It's the stories because it's the narrative. It teaches them who the characters are. It teaches them what God is like. It doesn't say God is this and not that. It just says God is like this and God is like that. And this is what God does with God's people, right? It's interesting to me that we're looking for precision and yet story can be open and it teaches us to expand our imagination. This is how we shape our kids. Stories teach our kids about roles and about the major characteristics of the players in their lives. And it makes room for the fact that God will always be a player, perhaps the player in your life. Who he is? Who is God? Who are his people? What can God be expected to do to defend his people even when they're wrong? These are the stories that shape their souls. Where can God be found? This is why it's crucial to be part of a community of faith, and this is not a commercial for ANC, but get yourself into a network of some kind because you can't do this alone. Do you know what we do when we gather on Sunday mornings? We retell our story. We need to be reminded. God is faithful. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it on Friday night, does it? Well, get yourself back to a group of people who cherish the stories that have created out of nothing, literally a community. We are Houston. We are Iowa. We are Michigan. We are people from all over the place that God has brought into one place. And when we gather, we retell those stories, and it shapes our soul. God is lover. God is wooer. God compels us always to come home. We are the objects of his inexhaustible love, he won't tire. He won't fail. He's always on our tail. This is who God is. This is what we tell our kids. We are the targets, and he is aiming for us. He makes warriors out of cowards. He makes great peoples out of wanderers. He makes queens out of peasants. He makes great nations out of slaves. These stories shape the souls of our children. Number one, we, we shape their souls through story, and number two, through ritual. I love that word. It's so rich. What do I mean by that? I mean specifically the sequence, right? For example, when God's people disobey God's commands, they do reap bitter fruit, but God always brings them home. There's a sequence here. They don't reap distance. They reap consequences. But hear me now, they don't reap distance. God is with them in Babylon. God is with them when they are estranged and hauled off to other, na other nations in captivity. They remain right in the center of God's affection. They always have. We always have. When God's people wander and take up false gods to fill in the, the gap that fear creates, he compels them home and he forgives their weakness. This is the ritual. It's the sequence. In the liturgy, in the high church, it would be this. We gather. We lift up songs of praise. God draws near. We're aware of our brokenness, and so we repent, and so absolution is conveyed, and then so then we break into the fellowship of the table. There's a sequence. There's a ritual our kids need to know what comes next by watching us and through living in, in, in these ways. There's a ritual in our homes. When mommy screams, mommy repairs. When daddy yells, daddy fixes it. He comes back and he soothes, right? You, you see what I'm saying? 
When the child willfully disobeys, there's a consequence surrounded by unconditional love and compassion that understands their brain, brain is still being formed. There's ritual, there's sequence, there's story. They know what comes next. They know that mommy isn't going away. They know that dad isn't leaving. They understand the cadence of this through the lives that we live. So what is the gospel for us today? Remember, if it's going to be gospel, it has to be good. I'm not going to lay a ton of new things on you to do to be a successful parent. Let's just get right down to the basics. We've got to stay close, and we've got to love unconditionally. You've got to never change those locks, guys. You've got to never utter those words. You do this, and you're done. We're done. I know. I know kids make crazy decisions. Do you remember when you were 16? Nobody gets it right all the time, and that's actually not what we're in the game for. I want this to be a graceful message. We are so layered down. I, I, watch, I watch heaviness come over the faces of some of you across coffee tables in South Austin when I ask you, how's it going with your kids? And when we know we're being inspected, everyone puckers. No one wants to answer this question. Here's my question. Are they healthy? Are they curious? Are they kind? Do they know God will never relent because you never back away and threaten them with distance? Do they know that? You know what? The rest of it, they're going to figure it out. They're going to drop out of church probably in college anyway. Don't panic. They're going to challenge some lines. They're going to do some things they may inhale. It's going to be okay. (laughs) Those two things. Stay close. Do the work. Hold back the need to teach every lesson. Hold it back. I'm the worst at this, you guys. Stay close and love unconditionally. That's not a lot of advice. This may mean, this may even be a gross oversimplification of what it means to actually parent. But here's what I know. The only person truly equipped to parent your children is you. You can fall back into that. You can lean on that. You can count on that. That is a reliable reality in your life. You have what it takes. You are enough. Just get love right and stay near. And I think that's really all we have to do. You say, well, I thought it was going to be harder than that. Let me tell you what. There's no, there's no black belts in this, and you know that. Just, just hold them close. Hold them close and never stop loving them. Never stop loving them. Join me on your feet. You can hit the lights, Drew, wherever you are. Or right in. There you go. We end every time... We have a time in the Word. We end it with a time at the table. And I don't think it's ever more appropriate than on a day like today. Some of us need to limp to the table today. Some of us are so far buried under layers and layers of topsoil of guilt and shame from our parenting and from our kids that we can barely reach our hand in the direction of the table. But just let me promise you that God will meet you. We've been promised that he would. And I think it's in these times when we most need God, we're most aware of our inadequacies. And it's amazing to me that he always speaks so kindly to me when I'm broken and I say, I, I, I blew it, I blew it again. Just get back on your feet, stay close, do the work, and love unconditionally. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, make this real to us today. Help us to first understand how deeply we are loved and then to love that deeply to those that you put in our life. 
I pray, Lord, even this week that you would do some repair work, that you would show us how to lead as parents, to set up a scenario in which words could be spoken and things could be said and healing could occur. Help us, Lord. Help us not to buckle under the weight of parenting. 